That'll get you going, won't it? Did you see that one where the guy went through the rocks? I'm like, okay, that's the difference between bold and... All right, we'll leave it at that. Anyway, hey, we're glad you're here with us today. Welcome to Kingsway Christian Church. If you're visiting with us, you picked a great day to be here. In fact, there's a meet and greet after this service. I'd love to meet you in our response room. Come on over. If you're fairly new here or new here, just come on by. I'd love to shake your hand, give you a hug, and welcome you to Kingsway. So let's jump in today. I want to show you a series of pictures today. I want to see if you can guess who these people are. Some are going to be easier than others. And uh, we'll just see how you do. You ready? There's a test. You get into heaven if you pass, and um, I don't have that kind of power. All right, here we go. Who's this first one? Who's the first one? Who is this? And you know it, right? Because you met him. This, we had a picture similar to this in my house growing up. It was a little different, but similar to this. And, and uh, this is what I would call the classic American Jesus. So you've got the, the fairly white skin, you've got the blondish brown hair, the green blue eyes, the lighted kind of glow behind his head, and just this peaceful look. He's looking up into heaven as if to say, I have no troubles in the world whatsoever. All right, you got the first one right. You did pretty good. Let me show you the next one now. This might be a little harder, especially if you're new at this thing called Jesus. Let me show you the next one. See if you can guess who is this. It might take you a second. Any guesses? It's not Jesus. This is supposed to, yeah, there you go. It's supposed to be Peter. In the Bible, Peter's name is actually Simon. Jesus adds on the name Peter. It's a whole other story I don't have time for today. But literally, we call him Simon Peter. And this is, if you imagine there was a camera at the worst moment of your life, that's what's going on with Peter. Now, this literally isn't a real photograph. This is a moment, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but this is the moment where Peter denies Jesus three times on the night that Jesus was crucified. That's a bad day right there. So let's talk. I want to I dig in, before I show you another picture, I want to dig into the Simon Peter guy for a second. And I want to walk you through his journey with God. Because last week, as you well know, we have 56 people give their lives to Christ. Three more baptized today. There's another one in the next service. Today may still be your day. Any Sunday at Kingsway, you're ready. We're ready to tell you about him. But I want to walk through this guy and walk you through his journey. Because I think it's going to be helpful for some of you to see his journey and what that meant. So what we find is in... Uh, the first thing that would happen is Simon Peter. Simon Peter gets called by Jesus to be a disciple. And here's how that looks. So Simon literally um, is a fisherman. He and his brother Andrew own a business and they fish a lot. And they have another couple of brothers, James and John. So Simon and Andrew, James and John. And all four of them end up later becoming disciples and then even later apostles. However, in this moment, they're fishing. And they've been up fishing all night. Now they're very, very good at what they do. They are businessmen. They own their own boats. They own their own nets. They own their own business. And they're good at it. But they were up all night and couldn't catch a lick. And in Luke 5, Jesus comes to them and, and it says the next morning is on the shore. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you try throwing your nets on the other side of the boat? Now, I don't know how this goes, men, when your wives say, you know, I bet you could fix that if. There's a whole backstory here as to why Simon Peter decides to listen to Jesus. I don't have time for that, but he does. He throws his net on the other side of the boat. And what he finds is he grabs so many fish, his nets can't even contain all the fish. He's like, Oh, wow. So they kind of get everything in and they get to the shore and Peter jumps out on the shore and he just falls down at Jesus' feet. Now you need to understand the context of what's happening here. This is a sign of worship. But the question is, why is he falling at his feet? It's because he realized in this moment, I've been up all night. I've been doing this all night long and I didn't catch a lick. And this guy says, do this. I do it and something amazing happened. In other words, 
He would have known if fish were just hanging out on the other side of the boat. It's not like fish hang out on only one side and don't come to the other when we're talking massive amounts of fish. But Jesus did something miraculous, and Peter gets it. So then we find ourselves, Luke 5, verse 10. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. And Jesus gave the first Christian uh, pun in the Bible. It's not really that funny, Jesus. They laugh at your jokes like they laugh at mine. But the whole point is Jesus does it. Now, I want you to see this here, this word afraid. It's underlined. <clears throat> it's in Greek. It's, where we, it's the root of the word phobos. You may notice phobos sounds a lot like what? Phobia, exactly. It's where we get our English word phobia from. So you got to be careful when you're looking at English and we've taken a word and into our own language and changed it, modified it. It doesn't always mean the same thing. In Greek, this word phobos, literally what it means is do not run away. Do not be so scared as to turn tail and go the other direction. So now Peter's on the shore kneeling down and he say, he's just terrified of Jesus. Who has this kind of power? And Jesus' response is, Peter, don't be so afraid that you quit and run away. And I tell you this because right up front in Simon Peter's life, this is the thing. This is the thing that will mark his life all the way through Scripture. Now let me show you the rest of the verse, verse 11. And when they came, as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Hmm. So Simon Peter, the very first time when Jesus calls him and says, come follow me, come follow me, come follow me, his response is to leave everything. He literally left his boats there with all the fish in it. Now, maybe he had some helpers there and they took it and sold it. He left everything. I have a theory, and it proves true in my life, and I'll bet it proves true in yours. Peter didn't really leave everything. He just left everything that was there in that moment. And see, I've learned this throughout my life, and I'm guessing throughout yours, that when I come to Jesus at different times and he does that next thing, that next step in my life, I leave the thing he's asking me to leave, but I don't even fully realize all the things he's still calling me to do, all the things he's still calling me to leave. But thank God he's faithful he doesn't make me get it all in moment one. He just in moment one tells me what I need to do to get to moment two. And then in moment two, he tells me what I need to do to get to moment three. This is why I often call this thing with Jesus we got going on a journey. Man, we're on a journey. He's taking you somewhere. You just don't know where he's going. And if he told you the end destination, you'd probably throw in the towel at day one and go, I can't do that. Let's take a, next, a look at the next moment in Peter's life. Here we find in this moment. Simon Peter is afraid, afraid of Jesus' control over creation. That's what we're going to see. So in this story, we find it in Mark chapter 4. If you have a Bible, fine. We'll take a look at part of this in a moment. Jesus, the, Jesus and the disciples go out on a boat. Now remember, at least four of the 12 are fishermen, at least four of them, meaning they're very, very, very good on a boat. Now, where this area was, um, the, you had the, the Sea of Galilee, and it was... It, sea level, and uh, then there was a very mountainous range. In the last service, I said it was almost sea level, so I had to correct myself. And there was a very mountainous range around it, and so oftentimes the storms would come up over the mountainous range. Because of the way it was kind of shaped in a bowl area, the wind storms would get in there, and the wind would blow around. It would just be very crazy very quickly. And so no matter how good you were on the sea, sometimes it would happen, it would be out of control. So 
this is part of the reason why when we get into Revelation, which we just finished studying, you see very early in Revelation, as I told you, there's a sea of glass in Revelation. And part of the reason that is is because the sea is a terrifying place to the people in Palestine in Jesus' day. Terrifying because you never know when the storm's gonna come and you never know what it's gonna do in that moment. And even the most trained professionals can be overwhelmed. And that's what we see in the story. So the disciples are on a boat, and Jesus, he's tired from ministry. So he climbs into the boat, and he's sleeping on the boat. And the rain is pouring down, and the waves are crashing against the boat, and the disciples are doing everything they can to stay afloat. And when they can't handle it anymore, they are freaking out. Like, how can this be going on? You imagine the thunder, the lightning, the booming, the rain, the whole nine yards. And Jesus is just asleep. That's it. And they run over and they're shaking Jesus like, get up, get up. Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus gets up, Mark chapter 4, verse 39. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and he said to the waves, silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Have you ever done a cannonball before? Come on. All the big guys in the room are like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I showed off. That's how I got my wife. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you cannonball into the pool or into the lake or the whatever it is, right? Doesn't it take a while for the water to calm down? Now imagine a storm so big that professional boatsmen are convinced they're going to die. How big are the waves? They're pretty big. But Jesus looks at them and he says, silence, be still. And suddenly, that means instantly, the wind stopped and there was a great calm. Could you imagine this? Like, you're yelling at Jesus. It's so loud and so scary and so ruckus. You're yelling at Jesus, wake up, wake up. And next thing you know, he says, silence. And it's, look at the next verse, verse 40. Then Jesus looks at them and he asks them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? I think Jesus is doing a couple things here that are important for us. Number one, he's trying to get to the root level of the issue in the disciples. And no doubt Peter's there that day. He's trying to get down to the heart of it all. You're still so afraid of what's going on around you that you stopped trusting in the one who is over it all. Sound about like you? I know it sounds like me. And he says, why do you have no faith? Where is your faith? Did you really think that this is how the story would end? Now, there's something else. That's the first thing. The other thing that's going on here is in another passage in Matthew, Jesus warns the disciples. He tells them, do not fear people. Don't be afraid of them. There's nothing they can do to you but hurt your body. And after they hurt your body, that's it. They can't do any more to you. And he says, instead, fear the one who, after you have died, can take your body and your soul and throw it into hell. Fear him. And what Jesus is trying to say is, don't literally walk around going, ah, God might throw me into hell. No, what he's trying to say is, why are you afraid of people? Why are you afraid of seas and oceans and winds and storms? Why are you so afraid of these things? It's because you are hanging on to this life. There's something going on in you. You're afraid to let it go. And I get this fear. I get it. I'm sending my wife uh, in a couple days. I'm sending her to Florida to fulfill my New Year's goals without me and the kids. I'm a little afraid. <laughs> one of the four boys might not be around when she gets back. It's going to be me or one of them. I don't know. And she's a little afraid that that's going to happen. And she's literally going through this list one night. We're laying in bed, and she's like, and what if the plane goes down at this? I just want you to know, hey, I love you. I totally get it. You can get remarried. I'm like, would you stop? 
You are not going to die. I'm not going to let you. You're not allowed. I get it. There's a natural fear. And she's like, I'm afraid. Who's going to take care of my boys? Who's going to be their mama? And I kept trying to tell her, God is in control. He's sovereign. He's got this. No matter what happens next, and I don't want the plane to go down, but he's got this. The worst that could happen is you die, and guess what? It's the best that could happen. But notice what Jesus says next, and this is huge. Or I'm sorry, look at what happens next. Verse 41, the disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man, they asked each other. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now notice, this phrase, absolutely terrified, this word terrified is the same word we've been talking about, phobos, it's the same one. But what's really fascinating is this word here, absolutely, is also the word phobos. And really what it says in Greek, and I think Andy Stanley for pointing this out to me, what this really says in the Greek is, they feared a great fear. In fact, there's a little word mega in there, which is where we, it's megas, but it's where we get our word mega, and really it's they were terrified of a great terrifying thing. But notice, while they were afraid of the wind, and they were afraid of the waves, and they were afraid of the boat going down, they were afraid of dying, when Jesus stands up and says, silent, and the whole thing goes quiet, they're not afraid anymore. They are absolutely terrified, an absolutely terrifying thing. They now realize that the one who is speaking has more power, and the one who controls the storm is actually bigger than the storm. What would it be like to actually learn that lesson and not ever forget it? Let's go to just one more moment in Simon Peter's life. And we find this one in Mark chapter 6. And again, it has to do with boats and water. Mark chapter 6, Jesus and the disciples are exhausted. It's been a long day of ministry. And lots of people need help and healing. But Jesus says to the disciples, look, the most important thing, and you need to get this, like a little side principle we'll cover later in the series, the most important thing in your life and my life is that I'm connected to God the Father. So I want you guys to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. I'm going to go spend time with the Father. I'm going to pray. I'll meet you on the other side. They thought like Jesus had an Uber app. You know, he was like, hey, maybe a boat will come pick him up and take him over. I don't know. But he told us to go, so we got to go. So they get in the boat, and they go out, and they're in the middle of the water, and Jesus finishes his time with the Father, and he decides to come down. Instead of calling Uber, he's just going to hop on the water and start walking the other side of the lake. Now, I said last week, and I say this a lot. Look, I realize some of you are like, come on, people walking on water, really? Uh, don't start at walking on water. Don't start at talking donkeys. Don't start at virgin birth. Start at a guy dying on a cross and raising from the dead. And when you come to peace with that, all the rest of it gets real easy. But in this moment, Jesus walks on the water, and I do believe he literally walked on water. I do not believe he knew where the stones were perfectly placed. You ever been in the middle of a lake? That's a big stone, a lot of them. He was walking on top of the water, and the disciples are terrified, understandably. What would you think if you're in a boat in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden somebody starts walking to you on top of the water? You'd think the same thing they thought. It's a ghost. And they literally cry out to the ghost in the story, although they're not the one we're going to look at. In one of the other versions, we're told that Peter is actually like, if it's really you, Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, all right. No, no, really. <laughs> and Peter gets out of the boat. And I don't know how many steps he takes. But all of a sudden, the wind and the waves scare him. And he goes down. And Jesus is there to pick him up. Peter, why did you doubt? But here's what happens in Mark chapter 6, verse 49. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. 
They were all terrified. They were all terrified when they saw him. But Jesus spoke to them at once. It says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. Phobos. Stop being afraid of winds and waves and storms and people and situations and things that might or might not ever happen to you. Stop being afraid. I am here. And God is always here. He's with you. He's for you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he's in you. I mean, it gets even better. So let's come back to this night. Take a look at this picture again. Leading up to this moment, Peter has had a series of very stressful events. Literally, it's, it's only within the first, I think the 72 hours or so before that, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, hey guys, I want you to know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And I wish, I don't understand this, I've preached sermons on this before, why didn't Jesus say, and I told him, no, get out of here, those are my disciples. Jesus does and he looks at him and says, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. You said Yes. Like, what are you saying yes for, Jesus? I thought you were my homeboy. He's like, no, see, what I'm doing in the world is not what you necessarily think I'm doing in the world. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I want you to know I'm praying for you. And after you have failed, I want you to turn back and take care of your brothers. Well, can we rewind the tape, Jesus? After I did what? Yeah, after you failed. Wait, wait, I'm, I'm not going out like that. That's the next conversation. Now they're sitting at dinner at the Last Supper, and the disciples are all there, and Jesus says, one of you is, is evil, one of you is going to betray me, and, and they're all going around, it's not me, right? It's not me, right? Like, I'm a little afraid right now. He seems to know what's going to happen before it happens. Like, I'm not going to be the one, am I? And then Judas gets up and leaves the table, and, and he looks at Peter, and they have this conversation, and, and Peter's like, no, not going to be me. I'm going down with the ship. No, you're not. Before the night's over, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. No, I won't, Jesus. I'll never do that. Oh, Peter, oh, if only that were true. And so Jesus gets arrested, and Peter's going to back up his words, and he pulls out a sword, and he lops off a Roman soldier's ear, and Jesus just puts it back on. He looks at him, Peter, that's not what we're doing here. And, and Peter watches Jesus get arrested. And from a distance, he follows the crowd arresting Jesus as they lead him to be tried, punched and mocked and spit on and drug away in chains. And Peter begins to lose hope. Maybe the story's over. Maybe this king that I've been following isn't really a king. I don't understand what's going on right now. And he ends up in a courtyard. And see, he's from Galilee, and men from Galilee have a very thick accent. It'd be like if somebody from Mississippi walked up here. You'd be like, something's different. They're from a different part of town. And everybody around the campfire starts going, Peter, Peter, wait, wait, wait. I don't, weren't you with that guy, Jesus? And he goes, no, not me, not me. It wasn't me. And he goes to another fire, another place, and another person recognizes him. And one of the Gospels, I believe it's John, tells us that a little servant girl, a young servant girl, actually comes up to him and says, yeah, 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 you're one of them. And Peter, he's a fisherman. He's a big, burly, strong dude, and he's afraid of a servant girl. He says, I don't know him. I don't know him, I swear. And Luke tells us in that moment, the rooster crowed. And he looks into the place where Jesus is, and their eyes meet. By the way, that kind of detail 
is because Luke interviewed Peter and heard the story directly from Peter. As Peter retold and went back over the details of that story. What must it have felt like to Peter in that moment to have his heart sink, to see the eyes of your Savior? And to wonder, have I blown it beyond all comprehension? It's always seemed a bit odd to me that Peter was so terrified, given of all the things. And I only told you a a tip of the iceberg. And at this point, he's seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He's seen him feed 4,000 and 5,000 miraculously. He's seen him heal cripples and lame people and blind people. And the list goes on and on and on. We've seen him, uh, literally, others pick up stones to try to kill him. We've seen others try to throw him off a cliff. We've seen all kinds of crazy things. And all their plans fail over and over and over again. And in this moment, Peter is so terrified. You know why, right? I mean, honestly, let's just be honest for a minute. Why? Because fear is terrifying. Right? And fear isn't necessarily rational, is it? It just is. I want to show you another picture. You get to tell me who is this. You ready? That's one good-looking young kid. This is me in 1990. And yes, kid and play were popular at the time. And if you're laughing, it's because you know who that is. And if you're not, it's because you don't. (laughs) Moving on. This is shortly after I gave my life to Jesus. I was asking my mom, I texted my mom all week, hey, do you remember the exact year and day I got baptized? She couldn't remember. And I can't remember exactly where it fell. This is right around the time when I gave my life to Christ. Let me just tell you, at that point in my life, I played year-round sports. I played football, baseball, basketball. If you call bowling and golf a sport, count those two. Played soccer, ran track, cross country. I was a year-round athlete guy. My entire identity was wrapped around athletics, everything. That's what I was known for. Until about six months after this picture was taken, um, I was at a school dance, and I was showing off, and I was doing splits, and that was showing off, and my hamstring snapped my pelvic bone in two, and uh, I spent the next few months in many doctors and rehabs and MRIs and CTs, literally couldn't go to school for 60 days because I couldn't sit down. When I did finally get to go to school, I had to carry a little pillow donut around to sit on. You laugh. That's not funny. (laughs) Okay, it's a little funny. Here's the point. When I gave my life to Christ around the same time, Jesus knew that I couldn't become the person he intended for me to become if I kept going down the path that I was going down. And I didn't like Jesus' plans for my life in this season. I'll never forget the day the doctor, after many, many, many visits, and uh, trying and trying and trying to get back in shape, but I just couldn't run. I couldn't even walk straight. Even to this day, if you notice, I'll have to stand with my leg out to the side because of the way it broke and healed. It just doesn't ever feel right. Driving down the road in the car is extremely painful. I can't ride a bike. And the doctor told me, you'll never play sports the same again. You may never, ever be able to play football, baseball, or basketball ever again. Some would argue I never played basketball in the first place, but... <laughs> Sticking with the story, here's the point. Jesus had to strip me 
of my identity in order to give me a new one. And the next few years of my life were some of the most lonely and painful, at least that was until I lost a baby about 14 years ago now. And until I almost lost my marriage shortly before that, and really until the last couple years here, which were pretty some hard years. And here's what I've known about Jesus in my life, and as I see it in Peter's life, and I'm guessing in your life too, is that Jesus has intended to do something in you, and he has intended to do something in me, but if he told us what step 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 50 look like, there's no way we buy in. And so he's not asking you to get to step 50 at day one. He's just asking you to trust him, and then he's a good and faithful father, and he'll lead you to the next step next, next. And the question for all of us is, are we ready to take the next step, or are we just going to keep kicking against the gold and putting up a fight? Because at some point, Jesus will do something radical to get you where he intends to take you. If you really want to be blown away, just read your New Testament. And every time you come to a passage that talks about pain or persecution, and it says something like, have true joy when you experience really hard times. Like, have what? Yeah, have joy in these moments. How can I have joy in these moments? Or how about some other ones where the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, when things are really going poorly and things are really hard, consider that discipline from your heavenly father. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because see, that's how you know your father loves you. I think his definition of love might just be a little different than mine. And the writer of Hebrews says, oh, no, no, not really, because doesn't every good father discipline its child? So are you telling me, are you telling me that God is actually making these things happen in my life? And then the Bible's almost silent on that. And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. Sometimes God causes those painful things to happen in order to bring about in you, conforming you to the likeness of a son. But then in other times in you, they just happen. And here's the thing I've learned about God. He will never, ever waste a moment in your life, not one. Whether he caused it or allowed it, he will not waste it. come back to uh, this Jesus we met. I like this Jesus because he's safe. I like this Jesus because he looks friendly and kind and peaceful. He looks like the kind of Jesus I want to come to when things are really hard and just say, hey Jesus, can you help me? And he'll say, yes. (laughs) But the reality is first century Jesus wasn't white. He probably had dark olive skin. First century Jesus didn't have greenish brown eyes. He probably had dark brown eyes. He probably had dark brown or black hair. He definitely didn't have the hippie hipster beard thing going on. He did probably have a Hebrew beard, but it probably didn't look anything like that. He didn't even have a bed to lay his head on. He was probably sweaty and stinky and smelly. Not at all like the Jesus we picture. He was the Jesus who would go to the lost and the broken. He was the Jesus who went right into the most dangerous places. He went right up to immoral women that nobody wanted anything to do with, and he said, and I love you. And he went right up to those who were sick and and filled with demons, and they were they were desperate in every way, and he said, I will serve you. But he also went to the very rich and the very wealthy and the very educated and the Roman centurions, and he just kept going to everybody, everybody, any kind, old, young, male, female, Jew, Gentile. He didn't care. He had no preference. He just went to all of them, and he loved them, and he cared for them. And it didn't look like this, because that Jesus is way too safe. Instead, he probably looked like this. 
It's not very safe at all, is it? Just leave that picture up, guys. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Because of the joy awaiting him. I don't think of joy when I think of this. I think of excruciating pain. In fact, the word excruciating in our language comes from the word crucifixion. But that night in the garden when he prayed and said, Father, if there's any other way, let's go that road. And, and, and the Father said, no. And Jesus endured the cross. He went through it. And see, we don't fully grasp it. We don't fully wrap our heads around it. You can go watch Passion of the Christ. It'll give you a pretty decent idea. But even that's a little bit of a toned down version of it. The real thing is far more gruesome. The Romans, over many, many, many years, decades, possibly even centuries, had perfected crucifixion to the point where it was a torture tool, not a killing tool. Yeah, it ended in death, but it was intended to shame and torture the person. In fact, we can't even show this in our movies. Jesus was almost, almost guaranteed crucified naked. And his cross was not way up off the ground. It was just barely off the ground so that everybody walking by on the road could see the people being crucified as the birds would come and peck out their eyes. And as they literally would sit there just struggling with the nails in their hands or wrists and in their feet, pushing up and pulling up, trying to get a breath. And over time, your body would just finally get so worn out that you couldn't do it anymore. And your lungs would begin to fill up with, with fluid. And you would literally drowned to death in your own chest and he endured that taking my shame and my pain it's not safe at all and we pray prayers like oh God help me today to have a good day and by the way I pray that every night with my boys Oh, God, help us to get along and not fight is a common prayer heard in my house. <laughs> I'm not saying that's not real. I'm just not sure it matches the boldness of the cross. Oh, God, help me to find that perfect other person that I could spend the rest of my life with. Oh, God, could you just get me another couple thousand dollars so I could have just a little more? God, would you just... Lord, would you help? Would you fix? Would you? And I wonder sometimes if God goes, yeah, I can do all those things. I'll do all those things. But do you know how much more I could do if you just ask? In fact, in John 15, Jesus goes as far as to say to the disciples before he's crucified, whatever you ask for in my name, I'll do it for you. And see, we as Christians, we're afraid of what Jesus says there. We want to tone it down. We want to dumb it down. Well, what Jesus really means is, I kind of think what Jesus really means is what Jesus really said. Whatever you ask for in my name will be done for you. That doesn't mean that God is a genie. Well, I really want a bigger house, God. What it does mean is when we pray in God's will for God's things, in Jesus' name, you can take it to the bank. Now, yes, sometimes God says no because it's better for you or for his plan, or he says not yet because it's better for you or for his plan. But 
Why not ask? Why not think big? Why not be bold? Why not dream bigger than the little things that we look at in our lives and think they're so important when he's going, what is it you really need? What is it this world really needs? What do you think I could really do to you if you'd fall on your knees and cry out to me and turn off your phone and turn off your iPad and turn off your TV and for just a half hour fall on your face before the king of heaven and say, God, I need you to show up. This world needs you to show up. My family needs you to show up. The thousands of people being beheaded by ISIS, they need you to show up. The millions upon millions upon millions of people who've never even heard of Jesus, they need you to show up. Oh God, use me, use us, find a way, whatever you gotta do, but don't let me be safe. Man, I'm praying on my way in today and I'm like, God, I don't even know what to pray because every prayer I pray before Sunday morning is so safe. Blow up my prayers, God. Help me to think bigger, to dream bigger to do more, to figure this thing out because God, you're far too big and far too powerful for me to say, God, please just help us to have a great Sunday. Lord, I pray this place is full of people. I do pray this place is full of people so that I can make you a little bit uncomfortable before you go back and have to face him in everyday life and realizing he's far bigger, far more powerful, far more resourceful than anything you've ever seen or known. But there's an even better picture than that one. And it's this one. And that one right there is a game changer. If Jesus doesn't die, we don't have life or hope. But if Jesus doesn't raise, we don't have life or hope. Every great religious leader of all time has died or will. But only one came back from the dead. And when he did, it literally changed everything. The reason you and I are even sitting here today, almost 2,000 years after this event, is because it changed those men who were afraid. When Jesus was crucified, there's only one of his disciples who's there at the cross. It's John. All of the others are hiding in the upper room and other places. They're terrified that they might be next. But after Jesus raises from the dead, it's about 50 days later, just about 50 days later, the whole story changes. 50 days. Take your most embarrassing, frightful, shameful moment in life. Can you flip it around in 50 days? I don't think so. But here was why it changed. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says this just before going up into heaven. He says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive, what's that word there? Come on now, what's that word there? One more time like you mean it, like Jesus really changed everything. What's that word there? Power, power. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And another place that says in the Bible, you did not receive a spirit of timidity. You didn't receive a spirit that says shrink back or I ought to be afraid or worried about or stressed out about. No, 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 no. You received a spirit of power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're gonna be my witnesses. The word witnesses is where we get our word martyr. It's the word mortaria in Greek. It literally, you're gonna go to the ends of the earth and it might cost you something. Go anyway. And these same men who cowered from servant girls, they do. 
In the next few verses, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They become full of power. And all of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost, when Jerusalem was swelled as this great Jewish feast and celebration is going on, they just go out and start proclaiming the name of God. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear part of Peter's sermon. I want you to hear part of this because it is so different than what happened in the garden that night. Take a look at this. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter now preaching to tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of Jews. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. That might not be the smartest thing to say in this moment, Peter. These are the same people you were cowering from when it was a handful of them and a servant girl. There are tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands in the city, possibly all listening to you. Do you really want to point a finger at them? He goes further, verse 24, but God released him from the horrors of death and he raised him back to life for death could not keep him in its grip. Somehow this man, Simon Peter, his whole life has gone full circle now. He goes from meeting Jesus and Jesus says, do not run away afraid. To moment after moment after moment, this guy is running away afraid. Who is this man who can tell the wind and the sea to be calm? Who is this man who can walk on the waters? Who is this man who's being crucified to now? He is the one who died. He is the one who raised. He's your only hope. You need to turn to him. And it's crazy because guess what? 3,000 people that day did exactly that. They gave their lives to Christ and united with him in baptism. And Peter goes on in that same sermon. And he says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts. Do, do, do you get that? Peter, instead of cowering around the fire, is bold, bold in front of the people, and God does something with it. See, we're so afraid that God won't come through on his side, so we don't come through on our side. Isn't that it? God, if I take this step, if I actually open up and get into a relationship with somebody else and try to open up and be vulnerable, God, what if you don't come through? What if they increase my shame? God, if I actually take a step of generosity and I choose to be crazy generous, like in a way that doesn't make sense to the world, what if you don't actually meet my needs? God, what if I actually try to share the gospel message with this person that you've laid on my heart? And what if I share it wrong? What if I mess it up? What if they don't believe, God? What if you don't come through on your side, but I come through on my side? God, what if you fail me? And let's be honest, isn't that really the issue? I would take you all the way back to what Jesus said. I am here. Don't be afraid. Look at the rest of what Peter says. Verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. And then Peter continued preaching for a long time, giving Matt Nickerson permission to do the same. <laughs> Strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. But I want to take you back to this one verse, verse 39. 
This promise, this promise is to you and to your children and even the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Depending on your translation, some older NLTs and NIVs say to those who are far away or to those who are far off, it means the same thing. What, what Peter's trying to say in this moment is the gospel wasn't just for you. Oh, it's for you, and it's for your children, and you can take that to the bank, man. Preach the gospel all day long to your families. Your primary responsibility above everything else is to your families, but it's not your only responsibility because the gospel must go to those who are still far away, to the Gentiles who are far off, who are in other nations and other places and other towns and other cities and other schools. It must never stop going. And this is why we celebrate every time, every time somebody stands up and says, me, me, I'm all in. I don't want to hold back anymore. I don't want a fear of today or tomorrow, what's happened in the past. I don't want the shame of what I've done and others don't know about to hold me back anymore. That's why when 56 people gave their lives to Christ last week, we clapped and we cheered and we celebrated over and over and over again because we know this is a new beginning. Now there's a part of us that goes, man, you just better wait because you're in for it in a good way, but you're in for it. But there's a part of us that celebrates because now 56, 56 will be in heaven. I just want to show you a few of them. I wish I had time to show you all 56. You can find all of them on Facebook, but just take a look for a minute at some of these faces. These are our families. These are our children. This is our community. This is what God's doing in us. Isn't it glorious? There's a sense on their face of joy and trust, except for when John Knowles baptized. There's a little bit of fear. Just kidding. <laughs> You remember that for you? Do you remember that day you went all in and you trusted God no matter what's next? And then do you remember that next moment that when that thing happened and you started to wonder, are you really going to come through, God? Are you really going to be good enough, God? Are you really going to have what it takes, God? And his answer to you is yes, astoundingly, yes. Will you trust him? Here's where all this is going, and I'm going to close. We here at Kingsway, we have a vision of what we want to see done in the world. Here it is, Kingsway, a place where the lost and the broken are transformed by the love of Christ. Lost and broken. Those who are still far away and those whose lives have been so messed up by Satan and sin that they just need to know they have a Savior who loves them, who carried their shame and carried their pain and carried their dumb decisions all the way to the cross so that they might be transformed by his love. That's who we are. What we are going to do is for the next six weeks, we're going to tell you what that means, how we actually do that here. And throughout this series, here's my goal. I'm going to challenge you to take the next step, whatever that means for you, the next step, the next thing that God wants to do in you. I want you to be pouring out your hearts and opening up your, your ears to what God might say to you. And just listen. If he says, go, be bold, do this, take a chance. I want you to, to actually take a chance. Don't force God's hand into doing something in your life to move you to do it. Just take a chance. Just do it and see what he might do in you. Now, here's the thing, the last thing I'll say, and we'll tell you more about this as we go. So we have a membership class we do four or five times a year. So our next one is like in April after Easter. If you can be here for the next five out of seven weeks, or if you can't because you have to go somewhere, you got a trip coming up or whatever it is, and you can go online and listen to at least five of the seven of these messages, we will give you a chance at the end of the series to say, hey, I did it. I listened to at least five of these, or I was here for five of these. I want to become a member. And you won't have to take Discover Belonging to become a member. Look, I'm giving you an easier way to become a member. Now, if you're already a member, we may say, hey, you want to just let us know you want to keep you a member. That's great. We're not going to, like, remove your membership. 
But we want to let you know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God has called Kingsway Christian Church to be and to do in the world. We're not Plainfield Christian Church. We're not Connection Point. We're not any Methodist church or Baptist church in our community. We praise God for all of them. We pray that God carries out his unique vision and DNA in all of them. But God has called us to something very specific and unique here in this community and around the world. And we're going to tell you what that is. And so I'm going to end with this. I want you to start to pray a prayer. Pray a prayer about being bold. Because safe, that's boring. And I want to lead you in that prayer right now. And uh, when I'm done praying, we're going to take communion. And um, I want you to take that bread and that juice today and just remember the boldness of your Savior, who for the joy before him disregarded the shame of the cross, the pain of the cross, and endured it so that you might have life. And as you take that bread and you take that juice and you start this dangerous prayer with God, I just want to begin your conversation. Let's pray. Father God, I don't even have words to pray. I didn't write out a prayer, God. I feel so inadequate in this moment because I feel like all of my prayers have been so small. So God, right now, here's the things that just come to my mind. God, I pray right now that you would move us to not be safe and comfortable here in this life. Move us, God, to be bold. God, would you bring about whatever it is, whatever situation you need to bring about, whatever it is you need to create, whatever it is you need to do in us, would you do it, God, so that we would take that next step, boldly step out in that next thing of faith and trust that whenever we jump, you're gonna catch us. And God, I pray, as you stir in our hearts and move and lead and, and guide, God, fear is going to creep up over and over and over again. Would you just keep screaming this message to us over just so loud? I am here. I am here. I am here. Trust me. I got this. I got you. Hang on. And God, I pray you would not let us leave here today unchanged by you. In Jesus' name.